What is up all you beautiful people out there? Thanks for tuning in. My name is Bree and you are listening to The Macaw Millennial. So for anybody who may be new to the podcast, I just want to take a quick second and talk about what we do here. So my name is Bree. I am a 27-year-old millennial mom to a wonderful little girl who drives me batshit crazy. Uh, and I love everything creepy, spooky, horror-filled of the world. And I'm going to assume if you are tuning in, then so do you. Um, I just want to give a little brief description. We do have two episodes that have already come out previously. The first is about Gypsy Rose Blanchard, and the second is about Luca Magnata. Um, Just a little side note, I do have a TikTok, and I'll... um, you know, reiterate that at the end of the episode, uh, that you can find me at BKLAUG, where I do little snippets kind of of each case I kind of cover every week. Um, so you can get a little extra content there. And I also have created a Facebook page, um, the Macaw Millennial, um, on Facebook. So without further ado, let's go ahead and look at today's topic, which is Penhurst State School in Spring City, PA. And I do want to take a quick second to say, I know this episode is going to be a little different from the last two we've had. I know the last two have kind of covered um, more of like the murder-based topic. Um, This one is probably going to be more of a horrific in like a historical manner and um there is going to be some focus on the paranormal elements of it too so if that's not your thing feel free to skip this episode if you're here for it then you know keep listening i got some cool stuff coming your way um so with that i'm going to jump right in Penhurst State School opened January 23rd of 1903 in Spring City, Pennsylvania, under the much lengthier name of Eastern Pennsylvania Institute for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic. Per opacity.us.com, the institution was opened as part of a growing trend in the early 1900s of segregating individuals who maybe had disabilities or handicaps um, and keep them kind of away from the general everyday public, which, you know, as we know today, is just crazy. You don't, you know, disregard somebody just because they were born with some kind of, you know, handicap or illness that they had absolutely no control over but you know different time in the past and all that so um, the facility was intended for people with intellectual disabilities as well as epilepsy to learn and be cared for in a safe environment which I gotta tell you that drives me a little crazy because I work with epilepsy patients they are no different than your average Joe off the street aside from every now and again they may or may not have a seizure And the fact that society found them deplorable in the early 1900s just kind of blows my mind. Uh, But we'll go ahead and move on. So I do want to take a quick second too to kind of dispel some of the myths that have uh, come out over the years about this place. It was not ever actually considered an asylum. As we said earlier, it was a state school institution. even though it consisted of a lot of horrors and things like that, um, it was intended to help people. It was never to just, you know, lock people away from sunlight and 
average every day. Um, but I just want to take a second to go ahead and dispel that rumor. It was never an actual asylum. Um, that comes later on. We'll discuss that as a uh, marketing technique that the new owners have used for um, a Halloween attraction that they have turned the facility into. So, back in the day, the campus consisted of 20 buildings. Some of the buildings include Quaker Hall, which was used as a low-functioning ward, um, the Philadelphia Building, which was originally um, used for on-campus housing for staff before it was uh, turned over for residents. Um, and speaking of residents, Pennhurst would have 800 staff members to nearly 2,800 residents. Throughout its eight decades of a functioning facility, it would see over 10,000 resided patients, and at their peak, they would house 3,500 at one time. 3,500. That's like probably the same amount as a small town. I'm going to take a second real quick to apologize. Uh, if you hear snoring in the background, it is my dog, Wish, who for some reason decided that he does not want to hide under the bed and wants to sit on my lap and snore. He's cute. We'll let it go for now. But anyway, coming back to discussing the residents, uh, most of the patients were referred to as children. Um, the patient's ages would range from infants to up to 70 years of age. Um, and regardless of what age they were, they were always referred to as children, which if I were a more or less functioning person would drive me absolutely nuts to be referred to as a child. So as of 1964, um, it was reported that the average age of a patient was 36 years old. And um, the same patients were, on average, spending up to 21 years of their life at Pennhurst. I mean, I am 27. I think I'm 27. Yeah, I'm 27. <laughs> um, and, like, I, I think about how much life experience and stuff I had by 21 years of age. But to spend it locked up in the same facility where you're only getting very bare minimal exposure and experience to life, that's kind of jarring. Like, how, how would you even know how to function outside of this place afterwards? And I know, like, not all of them have been, you know, there from, like, birth to 21 years old, but still. So, I do want to take a second to apologize before I move on to the next portion. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about their IQ level and how people were um, labeled and separated. And I just want to remind people, it was a different time. It does not hold up with any values of today, least of all any values that I would hold. This was just how they would, you know, separate them based off their IQ back in the early 1900s. So they would rate their IQ based on a scale that would label them as a moron, an imbecile, and an idiot. Again, it was a very old practice and thank God that, you know, modern medicine has changed those terms over and replaced them with things such as mild, moderate, severe, and profound. And, um, you know, they were originally separated, though, by these standards. Um, obviously, some patients like these would require a certain level of care that isn't always easy to obtain. You know, it takes village and all that, and 
like many other state-run facilities at the time, they had to deal with overcrowding and underfunding, which, you know, obviously made jobs very impossible for nurses and physicians, and it made it even harder for, you know, the facility to want to bring people on and, you know, take these jobs, especially once they would see about all the um, overcrowding and how much work was required of them. So I'm going to make a reference here to BuzzFeed Unsolved. Um, one of the lead physicians who worked at Pennhurst State School was named Dr. Fear. I'm not joking. Um, and he wanted to, at one point, punish a resident for an alleged attack against another resident. Um, the doctor threatened him and said that if he touched one of his boys again, he was personally going to take care of him when the patient told him not to touch him. Um, it was reported that Dr. Fear responded with, quote, well, before this day is out, you're going to find out what I can do to you. Um, while trying to determine a punishment, uh, Dr. Fear asked one of his staff members for the most painful injection that he had that would not cause damage. He later injected this patient and claimed, quote, he really hit the ceiling over that, unquote, meaning that the patient literally hit his head on the ceiling from the shock of the injection just shooting him out of the chair, which is just absolutely bonkers. In 1968, um, you know, the public would finally start to call for closure of Pennhurst, and um, that was partly in effect due to a reporter named Bill Baldini, uh, who was a CBS affiliate at the time, releasing a five-part documentary entitled Suffer the Little Children, showing the horrors that existed within the walls of Pennhurst. Um, and cool little side note, um, Suffer the Little Children was actually um, the original basis for any of you guys that are like American Horror Story fans, which I absolutely am. You know, I, I cannot get enough of Evan Peters or Sarah Paulson. <laughs> um, but for any of you that have seen Asylum, when they do um, the scene with Lana Winters, who goes in and she's, you know, reporting about the horrors inside the asylum, that was actually based off of this documentary entitled Suffer the Little Children um, that Bill Baldini came out with. So when he first brought the footage back to show his news director, they thought that he had originally been exaggerating about the conditions when he came to them with the idea for this story. Um, and the reaction from the public was so strong after the first segment aired that he was told to go back and shoot everything. Just to give you like a brief idea kind of of how uh, heart-wrenching this documentary was to watch. Um, Bill recalled at one time walking into a room containing only two attendants to 80 children running in age from six months to five years old and they were all just sitting in these big metal cribs and when he asked why the kids were contained in cribs he was told that they couldn't walk and when he asked why they couldn't walk, the attendants told him that there were not enough staff to be able to set up mattresses on the floor so that the kids could learn to crawl before they could learn to walk, which is, it's heartbreaking. That's horrible. You know, for a child five years old 
to not even know how to crawl. I, I just can't even imagine. And I have seen some of the images and clips from this documentary over the years, and it really is just eye-opening, and it, it takes a really strong stomach to be able to, you know, really make it through from beginning to end. So as we move on, um, we're eventually going to get into a portion where we talk about a, um, a court case proceeding of Holman versus Pennhurst State School, which was, a, you know, a huge um, reason why the school ended up having to close. Um, but just to briefly mention it, contrary to what came up in the case proceedings, Bill had claimed that many of the administrators he came in contact with were happy to give him information so that they could get the word out on how dire the situation was at the facility. He also insisted that most of the personnel were there to help and that they did an incredible job with what little resources they had available to them. So it wasn't like they were really purposely trying to be neglectful it's just that they didn't have the tools for the trade so to speak and on top of not even having the tools for the trade they didn't have the staffing clearly if they have only two attendants to a 80 children filled room i just cannot even imagine so one of the biggest facts that would come to light out of this documentary was that um you know, alongside the visual horrors that it displayed to the public, um, the knowledge would come out that some of the more expensive zoos in the country were spending over $7 a day to feed their animals per animal, where Penhurst was spending less than $6 a day per patient to feed their patients. Um, and, you know, I'm not 100% if that's just for their, you know, food budget, because figure if a lot of these patients are, you know, handicapped and whatnot, they have some disabilities, some of them aren't going to be, like, toilet trained, they're not going to have, you know, great um, eating skills, so some of them could require, like, you know, uh, pacifiers, diapers, food bags, things like that, like G-tubes, like all that kind of crazy medical stuff that you don't really think about until you're faced with. Um, so it does lead me to wonder if that was included in that $6 a day per patient, which given how, you know, horrible the facility ended up, you know, resorting to, I don't think I'd be surprised. Um, we're going to go ahead and move on to that court case I was mentioning earlier, um, which uh, I'm going to reference penhurst.org here. Um, now, I kind of put like some of the most horrific things, unfortunately, that I found. I mean, like, unfortunately that these things actually happened. But I just wanted to let you guys know, if you go to penhurst.org, this case will come up. And if you want to know even more, like, feel free to take a look around. I was reading through this and I thought to myself, oh my god, I never even knew how horrible this was. So the case uh, occurred in 1974 and it was brought on by a resident um, under the name Terry Holderman who filed a class action lawsuit against Penhurst and she reported that she personally had suffered at least 40 injuries including cracked teeth, a broken jaw. Um, during her time as a resident at the facility and um, from what I read she also had apparently had broken fingers, um, bruising, uh, scratching, and uh, all those kind of horrible things. Like I mentioned, I'm not going to include like everything from the case. I'm going to include some of like the bigger highlight points, but um, 
some of the reasons that she was filing the lawsuit, I'm going to go through and state. Um, excerpts included, no psychologist on duty at Pennhurst at night or over the weekends. So if a resident had an emotional crisis, they may go without treatment until the next morning or until the weekend is over. And I feel like in a day and age like today, where we have you know, things like crisis centers and um, suicide prevention hotlines and all that available. There was none of that back then, guys. And it was, you know, the idea that you couldn't reach out to a doctor if you were having a complete mental breakdown until the next business day or even, you know, from, say you have an issue on, like, Friday afternoon after, like, say, 5 o'clock, you know, people normally work nine to fives and then you couldn't talk to anybody about it until like 9 a.m the following monday i that's oh my god i can't i just can't i'm thinking how does that even work especially in a mental well it's not a mental facility obviously i'm gonna quote myself i apologize that was not cool of me to say a state school a state school with people who are probably a little more sensitive emotional-wise than your average person off the street. One of the other reasonings that was stated was that restraints were used as control measures in lieu of adequate staffing. Um, the restraints could be either physical or chemical. Um, the physical restraints would range from placing the individual into a seclusion room to binding the person's hands or ankles with um, posies or uh, strapping um, and binding them to a bed or a chair. Chemical restraints, um, they're usually referring to like tranquilizing methods. Um, patients would be left in physical restraints as well as one of the longest being 674 hours and 20 minutes. Um, this particular resident was so destructive that she had blinded herself. Um, this incident occurred in September of 1976. The patient was not initiated into occupational therapy until 1977. So she caused this injury to herself where she had blinded herself. Clearly she is not, you know, fully within her well-rounded mindset. Um, but regardless, they did not push for any kind of occupational therapy for her basically being blind until like five, six months later, if this occurred in September. So, um, it was also stated that tranquilizing drugs were often used to control the patient, not for treatment purposes, um, and the rate of drug use on some of the units was extraordinarily high, much higher than it probably needed to be. Um, I'm going to go off of that from, you know, a basis of unit to unit. It didn't really strictly explain, but, you know, as we stated before, certain buildings were labeled for, you know, higher functioning versus lower functioning, um, dependent upon where you fell on the scale. So if they're saying that they're using tranquilizing drugs on these, you know, much higher functioning areas at a very high rate, then clearly something is not right. Um, beyond these measures, uh, it was stated that the sanitary conditions were absolutely deplorable, which this was also seen in Bill Baldini's documentary. 
Um, there was often excrement and urine on the ward floors. Um, living areas did not even meet minimal standards for cleanliness. Outbreaks of things such as uh, pinworm and infectious diseases were like everyday common occurrences. Um, when they asked the superintendent about this, he replied, there is not adequate space for the residents um, in the living area does not provide privacy for those persons who can handle privacy. There does not seem to be adequate activity areas or program areas or even general activity areas within the general living area. I feel like that's kind of a runaround sentence. So uh, let's take a second here and dissect that. I think what they're trying to say is that no matter where you put a patient who has like an outbreak of something, so say your patient has like neurovirus. And I'm only using that as an example because that's what my daughter has had for the last two weeks. And it's been a living hell. And it's also apparently super contagious. My daughter has had it for two weeks. God bless her. She has just started to feel better. Uh, but this has circled around every single member of my family she has been in contact with. So, uh, like, people like my grandmother only spent like a couple of hours with her and then went home and got sick within 24 hours and if we're talking about a patient who there's not enough space to segregate them away from other patients and they're in a room with say maybe like 20 30 other people that is just nuts i can't even imagine you're gonna have something like that going around for months and months and months if you ever get rid of it and there's not really much they can do. It's a it's a virus. It's not like it's an infection where they could give some kind of antibiotics. You know, viruses kind of just have to work their way through our systems. Now, aside from the, you know, obviously less than clean uh, standard precautions for these people, um, it was also reported that injuries to residents were common day occurrences through um, self-abuse as well as... Um, attendant to resident, um, which kind of contradicts what Bill Baldini had said earlier, um, like I had described. Um, in January 8th of 1975, one individual reportedly bit off three-fourths of the earlobe and part of the outer ear of another resident while the second resident was sleeping. Um, around the same time, one resident pushed the second to the floor resulting in the death of that second resident so you've got one person over here who's chewing off earlobes like they're jeffrey dahmer at a you know country buffet and you have another resident who's just playing bully on the playground and pushes this other person and you know I couldn't really get any specifics, but I'm assuming probably had some kind of a head injury, hit their head, and then proceeded to pass away. Now, as far as the staff abuse to residents goes, um, you know, just a little trigger warning for anybody who, uh, you know, maybe has a little bit of a checkered past or anything like that. Um, in 1976, one resident um, claimed to have been raped by a staff member. Um, and one person had also claimed to have been badly bruised when a staff member hit them with a set of keys. And um, a third resident reported that they had been thrown several feet across the room by a staff member. And on each occasion, an investigation was conducted, 
and the staff person responsible was either suspended or terminated, which leads me to believe that, obviously, not that I think that these guys would have any reason to lie to begin with, um, but all of these claims had to have been true. Um, but, you know, above all of this, one of the most concerning accusations that came out during this court hearing was that many of the residents suffered physical deterioration as well as intellectual and behavioral regression during their residency of Penhurst, um, which is a huge deal. I mean, because this place was conducted and created to be a place where these people could go and supposedly learn and learn to live on their own in peace. Um, and if they're having intellectual and behavioral regressions as a result, that is completely counterintuitive to the whole purpose of this facility. Now, it was claimed um, that Terry Holderman, who was the original plaintiff in the lawsuit, as we explained earlier, um, when she had first been admitted in 1966, she had some speech and language, um, enough to be able to say things like mama, dada, no, baba, and nana. By the time this action lawsuit was filed, she had completely lost her speech. She couldn't say anything. So those few words that she had already had in her vocabulary had absolutely disappeared. So the trial was used to help show the immense conditions of Penhurst that were described, and um, they were later found undisputed of the Supreme Court, who agreed that the conditions were um, not only inadequate but dangerous for fear of residents physically being abused and drugged by staff members on a regular basis. Um, they also noted that it was so bad that they felt genuinely that physical, intellectual, and emotional skills had deteriorated in the multitude of Penhurst residents. So it wasn't like it was just a couple of people. It was multiples. It was dozens. I mean, for a facility that at one time housed, like, what was it, 3,500 people at once? Figured they're saying 3,500 at once, and maybe, let's just, you know, ballpark here, like maybe 1,500 of them are losing these everyday life skills that they had already had before being admitted to the residence. Um, residents that were over the age of 18 um, who would wish to leave were told they were not permitted to do so by staff as they were not ready to re-enter the community or that there simply wasn't a place for them to go and the residents were then court ordered to stay, um, which I feel probably helped play a big part in the overcrowding issue. It was also claimed by a former resident of the facility that staff members warned residents that if they told their parents or their families what was going on inside of Penhurst, they would be punished. Um, punishments would include things like beating them with a broomstick and cleaning of other residents' excrements. So, if you were a resident in this time, and say you had to go there for whatever reason, and you're seeing all of these horrible things unfold around you, and then you have family that cares and wants to be able to help you and see you, even though they cannot themselves take care of you within their home, you can't go and tell them what's going on without fearing that you are going to be next to be punished by, you know, one of these people who's supposed to be helping to take care of you, which is 
absolutely deplorable in my opinion. So, Penhurst State School and Hospital would officially close its doors in 1987. Um, now today, the facility runs as not only a Halloween attraction under the name Penhurst Asylum, but it's also under construction for historical preservation purposes, and it's also a site used to attempt to seek out paranormal activity. Um, the Haunted House is actually a collaboration with Randy Bates, who runs another haunted house in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, called Bates Motel and Hayride Haunted Attraction, um, that makes about $1 million in profit every year. So, the attraction of Penhurst has actually been opposed for several years by the Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Society, who strongly feels it portrays people with disabilities in demeaning and degrading fashions and does nothing but demonize the history of the facility. Um, according to researchers, uh, Penhurst is also a hotbed for paranormal activity, mostly in part due to the fact that all the suffering and deaths among patients that occurred on the property. Um, some of the most active locations of Penhurst include the tunnel system, that is a uh, system they have underground that exists to connect each of the buildings on the property, as well as the Mayflower Building, which is a building that is actually open to the public to conduct paranormal studies. Um, it is so active that a former member of staff who worked at the attraction, her name is Tamara Lawrence, um, specifically within the Mayflower Building, has written two books about her experiences with the paranormal. Um, in her books, she has made mention to uh, several spirits. One of them is a little boy named Howie who has a toy Fisher-Price airplane that he does not like people to touch. Um, there is also a mean janitor seen around the building, especially up on the third floor and the common room of the Mayflower building, and uh, he reportedly goes by the name Fisher. And another spirit was also referred to as, um, she's called the nurse, and she has been known to prick people in the art room with a supposed needle, and she is also very fond of women with long hair, and she likes to uh, reportedly run her fingers through it. So I'm going to go off here and uh, give you guys a little brief idea. So I actually live within driving distance to Penhurst. Um, we'll just go Penhurst State School. I want to be respectable with this. Um, and me and my husband have actually been going to the attraction every year for probably, I want to say, the last five to seven years. Um, it's our thing. We go every single year. It doesn't feel like Halloween for us until we go. Um, even one year where we had made a special trip out to California um, for our honeymoon to do Halloween Horror Nights and things like that, I had actually still surprised him with a trip to Penhurst, um, which he was so surprised about because, you know, we just spent all our money on the honeymoon. We were flat broke. <laughs> um, but yeah, we go every single year and, you know, the ambiance, the look of this place, it just feels completely spooky and creepy. And it's like, as soon as you step onto that property, you can kind of feel all of this energy that is just, uh, malevolent isn't really the right word, but like, 
it's heavy. It's oppressive. It feels like something that, you know, definitely will grab your attention and make you really think about how hard you have it in life versus how hard some of these poor people probably had it in life. Um, cool little side note because I'm thinking of it as in my head, I'm thinking of the walk we normally have to make from our car to the attraction, which, um, they actually have you park in this big old empty lot on the edge of the property. And then you have to walk through like this lamp lit, uh, walkway through the woods. And it is just, you know, add that in with, you know, again, lamp light in the complete pitch black of a forest and, you know, forest sounds. It's so creepy. It is so creepy guys. Um, but what I was going to say is, uh, interestingly, the picture that is the logo for the podcast is a picture that my husband and I took at Penhurst. Um, when you go through um, the walkway, they have a two buildings that are set side by side, um, and this walkway runs down the center of it. On the one building, they have this big cement ledge with um, the bars. And they have this one lone linoleum chair that is always sitting there. It's always in a different spot on that little cement ledge. Um, but if you look real closely at the Macaw Millennial um, logo, that's actually what it is, is one of the pictures I took of that chair. Um, and it's, you know, it just goes to show like how worn down this place is. It's surrounded by graffiti and foliage and everything else like that. Um, on top of that, like I said, we've been there for, like, every year for the last several years. Um, I've actually met Tamara Lawrence, um, the woman who wrote the two books. I have, actually, all of her books. Now it's three. Um, after this past year, she ended up writing a fiction novel based off of um, some of the history and experiences that she's had at the facility. Um, she's really, really cool to talk to and very, very sweet. Um, and... Every time we've gone to this property, I personally have had something happen, and it's just, it's easily one of the most paranormal haunted locations that I have ever been to. I mean, I visited a lot of places. I visited the Lizzie Borden house. I, I you know, visited the Queen Mary. I visited um, Eastern State Penitentiary, and... I think the reason that we go back to Penhurst every year is because, for us, it is the closest feeling to paranormal and haunted that we will ever get. Um, so I'm going to tell you guys about a little a little uh, experience that me and my husband have one year. Um, so one year, um, a few years ago, back before my daughter was born, we decided it would be a cool idea to not just do the attraction, but, you know, I, I guess we had a little extra pocket money and we thought, let's go and do the history tour too, because with the history tour, you get to go during the daylight, you get a whole different idea of the facility, the property, everything. And on top of that, um, you get to see other areas of the property that you don't actually get to see during the attraction. So during the attraction, they limit it down to just like three 
four buildings um, and the tunnel systems. And it's not even the entirety of the tunnel systems. But, you know, like we talked about earlier when we were discussing the history, this property consisted of like 20 buildings at one time. So, you know, while you can't really go into a lot of them because a lot of them are, you know, literally falling apart at the seams, um, it does let you go on to areas of the property that you would not normally be allowed to go on uh, during the attraction times. So we decided that we were going to go do the history tour. Um, and fun little side note, I am uh, somebody who is notoriously ridiculously early for everything. Like my mother has bred into me, like if you are not 30 to 45 minutes early, then you're basically late. Um, so in this instance, guess where we were like a full hour early. Uh, you guessed it. So my husband and I got out and, um, thankfully there were attendants around because, um, on top of the history tour that they normally run around that time of year, they also do like a photography tour because again, the place is very, um, decrepit and, uh, a lot of things falling apart and obviously very rich with history. Um, so they run a photography tour so that, um, you know, budding photographers, I guess, can kind of like pay I think it was like $65 or something like that to come and take some cool still images and like pad their portfolio. Uh, but anyway, they had attendants around who were there helping with the photography tour. So we showed up and they're like, oh, can we help you? And we said, yeah, we're here for the history tour. I think it's at like two. Um, I know we're like really early, but we live, um, I don't want to say how long away, but we do live some ways away. Um, and the guy was very nice, so he said, okay, let me go talk to somebody else, because I'm only been here a couple weeks, and I'll be right back. So he went and talked to whomever he reported to, and then he came back, and he said, so here's the deal. We have to go and take this photography tour um, around the facility, around the grounds, to kind of do their thing. You guys can go in the Mayflower Building, which, like I said earlier, is the most active building one of the most active buildings on the property. Um, and he said, you guys can go in the Mayflower building. It'll be just the two of you. And there's going to be two attendants sitting outside of the building. If you should have any issues, um, just do us a favor. Don't touch any of the artifacts and don't go in the basement. And otherwise go ahead and go in for an hour and just take a look around and yeah, have fun. Um, and, you know, obviously this was pre-COVID, um, but regardless, we were kind of flabbergasted because me and my husband, obviously huge horror junkies, huge paranormal junkies, and we're like, this is literally an opportunity of a lifetime that you're just gifting us because we were an hour early. Um, and I'm not telling people to go, like, early in the hopes that maybe this will happen to you. I think this just happened to be, like, the one time they had this kind of happen to them and they were like, yeah, what's the worst that could happen? So, um, we went up to the attendants and they, you know, were already aware and they were really nice. And they said, yeah, we're not going to go in at all. We don't really have any business in there and we need to stay out here in case any other stragglers kind of show up early for their tour. Um, but you know, like he said, just don't touch the artifacts. Don't go in the basement. Um, and you know, we also, like I said, again, knew we were being handed a huge, uh, opportunity and didn't want to, you know, do anything to upset them and not let us come back. So we, we, you know, obliged. We didn't go in the basement. We didn't touch any of the artifacts. Um, we did see like Howie's plane, um, 
you know, in the Mayflower building, again, pre-COVID, they used to have um, the bottom floor set up with different historical areas um, for you to learn a little bit more about the facility and its history in each area. So they had Howie's plane on display um, with some of the other original old artifacts from like the 1940s, 1950s um, on the lower level. So, you know, everybody sees the first and second floor when they're on their uh, attraction tour because what happens is if you buy um, the combo ticket which it's us obviously we buy the combo VIP ticket we're super poor now but anyway (laughs) Um, when you buy that ticket it leads you through the three like actual attractions with like actors and whatnot and then you get to do like a mini kind of ghost hunt thing it's it's not really like super authentic it's you're going in a long line of other crowds of people through um a kind of gated way around the building um but when you do that you only get to go through the first and second floor so there's three floors to this building not including the basement so obviously my husband and i were thinking about the logistics they said oh we couldn't go to the basement and we couldn't touch the artifacts they never said we couldn't go to the third floor. So us being the nosy Nels that we are, uh, we went through the first and second floor by ourselves and, you know, we were completely by ourselves. We could hear our own footsteps and, you know, uh, we could hear some of the noises coming from outside of the facility. The only reason we knew it was outside was because we would be in an area and there would be like maybe a cracked window and we would hear it coming from, like, the cracked window, not from, like, down the hall or the nearest stairwell or something like that. Um, so we went up to the third floor, and it was just the creepiest of creepy. The first two floors are set up, like, you know, like how you would kind of expect a hospital to be. There's different, like, sections and areas, but they're all pretty open floor planned. Um, there may be, like, a doorway, but it would be, like, an, a, a double doorway that no longer has doors attached. And um, there's, uh, you know, again, tons of graffiti everywhere. There's debris on the floor and things like that. But the third floor is L-shaped hallway with just dozens of doors. And they're all wide open. And it is the creepiest thing. Like, I'm <laughs> I'm getting a chill down my back just recounting it to you guys. Um, so we went down the hallway, and my husband, who, you know, I think he was a paranormal investigator in a past life. He lives for these things. Um, I love it, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I have a little bit of a chicken shit side to me. Not even going to lie. <laughs> But, like, he will, like, run headfirst in with a demon and be like, let's go, throw hands. Uh, (laughs) So, he, uh, we went down to the hallway, and all the way at the end of that hallway was one large open room, open-doored, and whereas all the other rooms had, like, windows, so there was some sunlight kind of streaming in through the doors and through the rooms and into the hallway. Mm Mm-mm, not this one. This room had no windows pitch black we turned on our phone camera lights and there is a lone chair sitting in the center of the floor i wish i was making this up guys because i 
so quick noped it out of that room. <laughs> um, my husband is much stronger than I am. Couldn't do it. Uh, there was a lone chair sitting in the center of the floor, and there was, like, a pentagram drawn on the wall behind it. And there's all this other kind of, like, dark graffiti all over the walls surrounding it. Again, I'm like, nope, you have fun. I'm going to check out some of the other rooms. So I went a couple rooms down, and I could hear him kind of, like, doing an EVP session. For those of you that maybe aren't familiar, that's where, like, you have a voice recorder with you, and you ask questions, and um, you're kind of just checking to see if your recorder picks up any kind of voices that the human ear wouldn't hear. So I can hear him doing an EVP session, and I go down the hall, and I'm looking through some of the other rooms, and I like, the whole time, I just have this creepy feeling of, like, eyes on my back. And again, the whole building, aside from the noise I can hear my husband making, is silent. And I can vividly recall at one point, I'm in one of these rooms, like, three doors down, and the building is so eerily still and quiet. I was looking at this old desk in a patient room that was just covered in dust and had a couple of, like, um, almost kind of like Hot Wheels cars sitting on it. And the window was cracked, again, deathly silent, and I heard voices from out the window, like the two security guards, and they were like laughing at something, and it actually kind of stunned me for a second because it had been so quiet before then that we couldn't even hear them talking from where we were at. We were complete opposite side of the building all the way up on the third floor and they're all the way down on the first floor outside at the entrance so my husband finishes up what he's doing and then he comes he comes back and finds me we both leave the building and um you know we're waiting for the tour to begin at this point we've kind of both sufficiently spooked ourselves i would say and uh he decides he wants to listen to that EVP session that he did. So he goes forth and starts the recording. As we're listening, I can obviously hear like my husband's voice and just kind of like this deep loaded silence. And he's asking him questions like, you know, I know there were kids here. Are there any kids in this room? You know, I've heard of the one that has the plane. His name is Howie. And I'm just kind of, you know, wanting to talk to somebody, make contact. And, um, you know, he's leaving some space in between these questions to see if he'll get any kind of response. And then he goes on to say, um, I'm not here to hurt you. I just want to talk. And after a beat of silence, you can hear a female voice shouting, no. And it didn't sound like it was right there in the room with him. Rather, it sounded like it was almost coming a room away. It was kind of muffled, but it is so clear. And like, we've gone to so many great lengths to save this audio file on our, like, iTunes so that we do not lose it. But it is, oh, uh, it is horrifying. Um, one of the other weird experiences we've had was, um, we went our first year with a huge group of people, and I hate myself now because 
well, you'll find out why. We went with a huge group of people. So, like I said, you can do a portion where you go through the Mayflower building and just kind of uh, search out paranormal activity, air quotes, um, surrounded by, like, dozens of strangers. So, you're not really getting a whole lot besides separate camera flashes. Um, and at one point, I remember we were going around a stairwell to get back down to go out and exit the building. So, I told the rest of my group, I said, listen, I want to kind of hang out here a second until some of the crowd thins out, and I want to try to take a picture, and I want to kind of see what I can get. So I stood there and waited and waited, probably like 10, 15 minutes. Finally, crowd thinned out. I was alone for a couple of minutes. I took my camera, and I made sure to put the flash on on my phone, and I sent this again was bef long before we were able to ever go on the third floor so it had been you know a restricted area so I angled it on the stairwell up towards the third floor where there was a restricted area and the picture that I found later on my phone at like two in the morning as I'm laying in bed scrolling through what I looked at to see if I you know maybe caught anything was chilling. So I had a picture of a man standing on the stairwell. It's like an outline. There's almost like mist around him, but it's so clear that you can kind of see that he has like facial hair and he's standing on the stairs and he looks pissed. And it wasn't until like that following year when like I said, my husband and I go every year, when we met Tamara Lor Lawrence, yes, Tamara Lawrence, um, that she said, oh, you must have got a picture of the janitor, because he's the only one here that would be, you know, that mean, and he usually tends to hang out up on the third floor. Um, so, yeah, that is uh, a couple of our absolutely horrifying experiences. Um, at Penhurst State School. Um, and I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode here. I didn't even realize that I had been babbling for like about an hour here, guys. I am a little sorry, but not that sorry because you chose to listen to it. Um, but I hope you enjoyed everything. And, you know, for anybody who has any kind of um, experiences that they want to tell me about or have been to Penhurst and feel like they know what I'm talking about, um, you know, feel free to like the Facebook page and, you know, put up a post. I would love to hear about it because, you know, obviously me and my husband aren't the only ones who's ever had experiences there. Um, and we would love to hear from some others who have. Um, so yeah, I think that's all. Um, I just want to say thank you guys so, so, so much for listening. Um, I appreciate it greatly. Um, again, if this is the first one you're hearing, you know, welcome. Um, just a heads up, we have two other podcasts that we've done, um, that you can listen to, two episodes prior to this. Um, and you can also find me at TikTok, again, at BKLAUG, where I do, like, a little true crime and wine every Sunday, where I kind of do, like, a very brief synopsis of the cases that I cover on here. Um, and I think that's it. So, thank you guys again. All your support means so, so much to me. I love you all, and later, Gators.